Introduction of the Story of the Barbary Corsairs by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James K. White. Introduction The Barbary Corsairs. Chapter 2 The Land of the Corsairs. It is time to ask how it was that a spacious land seemed to lie vacant for the corsairs to occupy, and a land, too, that offered almost every feature that a pirate could desire for the safe and successful prosecution of his trade. Geographers tell us that in climate and formation the island of Barbary, for such it is geologically, is really part of Europe, towards which, in history, it has played so unfriendly a part once the countries which we now know as tunis algiers and morocco stood up abruptly as an island with a comparatively small lake washing its northern shore and a huge ocean on the south that ocean is now the sahara or sahara which engineers dream of again flooding with salt water and so forming an inland african sea the lake is now the mediterranean or rather its western basin for we know that the barbary island was once nearly a peninsula joined at its two ends to spain and sicily and that its atlas ranges form the connection between the sierra nevada and mount etna by degrees the isthmus between cape bona and sicily sank out of sight and the ocean flowed between spain and africa while the great sea to the south dried up into the immense stony waste which is known preeminently as the sahara desert attractive land bare as the back of a beast without trees or mountains through one or both of these narrow straits gibraltar and malta all vessels from the outer ocean bound for the ports of france and italy and the levant were obliged to pass and it must be remembered that just about the time when the corsairs made their appearance in barbary the riches of the new-found western world were beginning to pour through the straits to meet those of the east which were brought to france and spain england and holland from alexandria and smyrna an immense proportion of the trade of europe had to cross the western basin of the mediterranean of which barbary formed the southern boundary any bold man who could hold tunis at the eastern corner or algiers in the middle or ceuta or tangiers at the western point might reckon upon numerous opportunities of stopping argosies of untold wealth as they passed by his lair the situation seemed purposely contrived for corsairs more than this the coast was just what a pirate wants the map shows a series of natural harbors often backed by lagoons which offer every facility for the escape of the rover from his pursuers and while in the sixteenth century there were no deep ports for vessels of heavy draught there were endless creeks shallow harbors and lagoons where the corsairs' galleys, which never drew more than six feet of water, could take refuge. Behind Jerba, the fabled island of the lotus-eaters, was an immense inland sea, commanded in the Middle Ages by castles, and affording a refuge for which the rovers had often had cause to be grateful. Merchant vessels were shy of sailing in the dangerous gulf of the greater Surtees, with its heavy tides and spreading sandbanks and even the war-galleys of Venice and Spain were at a disadvantage when maneuvering in its treacherous eddies against the corsair who knew every inch of the coast. Passing westward, a famous medieval fortress, with the remains of a harbor, is seen at Madia, the Africa of the chroniclers. 
Next, Tunis presents the finest harbor on all the Barbary coast. Within its goleta, or throat, a vessel is safe from all the winds that blow. And if a canal were cut to join it with the inland lake of Bizerta, a deep harbor would be formed big enough to hold all the shipping of the Mediterranean. The ancient ports of Carthage and Portofarina offered more protection in the Corsair's time than now, when the sand has choked the coast, and in the autumn months a vessel needed all the shelter she could get when the Cyprian wind was blowing off Cape Bona. Close to the present Algerine frontier is Tabarca, which the Lomellini family of Genoa found a thriving situation for their trading establishments. La Calle, once a famous nest of pirates, had then a fine harbor, as the merchants of Marseilles discovered when they superintended the coral fisheries from the neighboring Bastion de France. Bona, just beyond, has its roads, and formerly possessed a deep harbor. Gigil, an impregnable post held successively by Phoenicians, Normans, Romans, Pisans, and Genoese, till Barbarossa got possession of it, and made it a fortress of refuge for his corsairs, stands on a rocky peninsula joined by a sandy isthmus to the mainland, with a port well sheltered by a natural breakwater. Further on were Bugia, Bugi, its harbor well protected from the worst winds, Algiers, not then a port but soon to become one, Cherchelle, with a harbor to be shunned in a heavy swell from the north, but otherwise a valuable nook for sea rovers, Tennis, not always accessible, but safe when you were inside, and Oran, with the important harbor of Mars el Kabir, the Portus Divinus of the Romans, while beyond the Jamia el Gazawat, or Pirate's Mosque, shows where a favorite creek offered an asylum between the Brothers' Rocks for distressed corsairs. Passing Tangiers and Ciuta, Septa, and turning beyond the straits, various shelters are found and amongst others the celebrated ports of sali which in spite of its bar of sand managed to send out many mischievous craft to harass the argosies on their return from the new world not only were these ports in abundance for the shelter of galleys but the land behind was all that could be desired river indeed there was none capable of navigation but the very shortness of the watershed which precluded the possibility of great streams brought with it a counterbalancing advantage for the mountains rise so steep and high near the coast that the corsairs lookout could sight the vessels to be attacked a long way out to sea and thus give notice of a prize or warning of an enemy moreover the land produced all that was needed to content the heart of man below the mountains where the berbers dwelt and the steppes where arab shepherds roamed fertile valleys spread to the seashore Jerba was a perfect garden of corn and fruit, vines, olives, almonds, apricots, and figs. Tunis stood in the midst of green fields, and deserved the title of the white, the odiferous, the flowery bride of the West. Though, indeed, the second epithet, according to its inhabitants, was derived from the odor of the lake, which received the drainage of the city, to which they ascribed its peculiar salubrity what more could be required in a land which was now to become a nest of pirates yet as though this were not sufficient one more virtue was added the coast was visited by terrible gales which while avoidable by those who had experience and knew where to run were fatal to the unwary 
and foiled many an attack of the avenging enemy. It remains to explain how it was that the Corsairs were able to possess themselves of this convenient territory, which was neither devoid of inhabitants nor without settled governments. North Africa, the only Africa known to the ancients, had seen many rulers come and go since the Arabs under Akba first overran its plains and valleys. Dynasty had succeeded dynasty. The Arab governors under the caliphs of Damascus and Baghdad had made room for the houses of Idris, A.D. 788, and Aglab, 800. These, in turn, had given way to the Fatimi caliphs, 909. And when these schismatics removed their seat of power from their newly founded capital of Madia to their final metropolis of Cairo, 968, their western empire speedily split up into the several princedoms of the Ziris of Tunis, the Beni Hamad of Tilimsan, and other minor governments. At the close of the 11th century, the Muravids or Almoravides, a Berber dynasty, imposed their authority over the greater part of North Africa and Spain, but gave place in the middle of the 12th to the Muahids or Almohades, whose rule extended from the Atlantic to Tunis, and endured for over a hundred years. On the ruins of their vast empire, three separate and long-lived dynasties sprang up, the Benihafs in Tunis, 1228-1534, the Beni Zion in central Maghrib, 1235 to 1400, and the Beni Marine in Morocco, 1200 to 1550. To complete the chronology, it may be added that these were succeeded in the 16th century by the Corsair Pashas, afterwards Days, of Algiers, the Turkish Pashas or Beys of Tunis, and the Sharifs or Emperors of Morocco. The last still continue to reign but the days of Algiers have given place to the French, and the Bay of Tunis is under French tutelage. Except during the temporary excitement of a change of dynasty, the rule of these African princes was generally mild and enlightened. They came, for the most part, of the indigenous Berber population, and were not naturally disposed to intolerance or unneighborliness. The Christians kept their churches and were suffered to worship unmolested, we read of a bishop of Fez, as late as the 13th century, and the kings of Morocco and Tunis were usually on friendly terms with the Pope. Christians were largely enrolled in the African armies, and were even appointed to civil employments. The relations of the rulers of Barbary with the European states throughout the greater part of this period, from the 11th century when the fighting Fatimis left Tunis and went eastward to Egypt, to the 16th, when the fighting Turks came westward to molest the peace of the Mediterranean, were eminently wise and statesmanlike. The Africans wanted many of the industries of Europe. Europe required the skins and raw products of Africa, and a series of treaties involving a principle of reciprocity was the result. No doubt the naval inferiority of the African states to the trading republics of the Mediterranean was a potent factor in bringing about this satisfactory arrangement. But it is only right to admit the remarkable fairness, moderation, and probity of the African princes in the settlement and maintenance of these treaties. As a general rule, Sicily and the commercial republics were allied to the rulers of Tunis and Tilimsan and Fez by bonds of amity and mutual advantage. One after the other, Pisa, Genoa, Provence, 
Aragon, and Venice concluded commercial treaties with the African sovereigns, and renewed them from time to time. Some of these states had special quarters reserved for them at Tunis, Ceuta, and other towns, and all had their consuls in the 13th century who were protected in a manner that the English agent at Algiers would have envied 70 years ago. The African trade was especially valuable to the Pisans and Genoese, and there was a regular African company trading at the ports of Tripoli, Tunis, Bougia, Ceuta, and Sali. Indeed, the Genoese went so far as to defend Ceuta against Christian crusaders, so much did commerce avail against religion. And, on the other hand, the Christian residents at Tunis, the western metropolis of Islam, had their own place of worship, where they were free to pray undisturbed, as late as 1530. This tolerance was largely due to the mild and judicious government of the Beni Hafs, whose three centuries' sway at Tunis was an unmixed benefit to their subjects, and to all who had relations with them. Not that the years passed by without war and retaliation, or that treaties made piracy impossible. In the early and more pugnacious days of the Saracen domination, conflicts were frequent. The Fatimi Caliphs conquered and held all the larger islands of the western Mediterranean, Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, and the Balearic Isles. In 1002, the Saracens pillaged Pisa, and the Pisans retaliated by burning an African fleet. Three years later, El Mujahid, Muget, the lord of Majorca and the conqueror of Sardinia, burnt part of Pisa, and another incursion is recorded in 1011. From his stronghold at Lunai in Etruria, this terrible scourge ravaged the country round, until the Pope drove him out of Italy, and the Pisans and others turned him out of Sardinia. 1017. We read of African fleets cruising with hostile intent off the Calabrian coast, and of the Pisans taking Bona, which was then a nest of corsairs. 1034. Madia was burnt in 1087 and Sicily conquered by the Normans about the same time, 1072. But these were in the early days, and even then were the exceptions. In succeeding centuries, under more settled governments, war became very rare, and mutual amity was the prevailing policy. Piracy was always distinctly prohibited in the commercial treaties of the African states. Nevertheless, piracy went on, and most pertinaciously on the part of the Christians. The Greeks, Sardinians, Maltese, and Genoese were by far the worst members of the fraternity of rovers, as the treaties themselves prove. The increase of commerce under the stimulus of the Crusades tempted the adventurous, and the absence of any organized state navies gave them immunity, and there was generally a war afoot between some nation or other, Christian or Muslim, and piracy, in the then state of international law, at once became legitimate privateering. Our buccaneers of the Spanish main had the same apology to offer, but it is important to observe that all this was private piracy. The African and the Italian governments distinctly repudiated the practice and bound themselves to execute any corsair of their own country whom they might arrest, and to deliver all his goods over to the state which he had robbed. These early corsairs were private freebooters, totally distinct from the authorized pirates of later days. In 1200, in time of peace, 
two Pisan vessels attacked three Mohammedan ships in Tunis roads, captured the crews, outraged the women, and made off, vainly pursued by the Tunisian fleet. But they received no countenance from Pisa, the merchants of which might have suffered severely had the Tunisians exacted reprisals. Sicily was full of corsairs, and the king of Tunis paid a sort of tribute to the Normans, partly to induce them to restrain these excesses. Argonese and Genoese preyed upon each other and upon the Muslims, but their doings were entirely private and unsupported by the state. Up to the 14th century, the Christians were the chief pirates of the Mediterranean, and dealt largely in stolen goods and slaves. Then, the growth of large commercial fleets discouraged the profession, and very soon we began to hear much less of European brigandage, and much more of Moorish corsairs. The inhabitants of the coast about the Gulf of Gabes had always shown a bent toward piracy, and the port of Madia, or Africa, now became a regular resort of sea-rovers. El Becri, in the twelfth century, had noticed the practice of sending galleys on the cruise for prey, perhaps during war, from the harbors of Bona, and Ibn Khaldun, in the fourteenth, describes an organized company of pirates at Bugia, who made a handsome profit from goods and the ransom of captives. The evil grew with the increase of the Turkish power in the Levant, and received a violent impetus upon the fall of Constantinople, while on the west the gradual expulsion of the Moors from Spain, which followed upon the Christian advance, filled Africa with disaffected, ruined, and vengeful Moriscos, whose one dominant passion was to wipe out their old scores with the Spaniards. Against such influences the mild governors of North Africa were powerless, they had so long enjoyed peace and friendship with the Mediterranean states that they were in no condition to enforce order with the strong hand. Their armies and fleets were insignificant, and their coasts were long to protect, and abounded with almost impregnable strongholds which they could not afford to garrison. Hence, when the Moors flocked over from Spain, the shores of Africa offered them a sure and accessible refuge and the hospitable character of the Muslims' religion forbade all thought of repelling the refugees. Still more, when the armed galleots of the Levant came crowding to Barbary, fired with the hope of rich gain, the ports were open, and the creeks afforded them shelter. A foothold once gained, the rest was easy. It was to this land, lying ready to his use, that Captain Uruj Barbarossa came in the beginning of the sixteenth century. End of Introduction Chapter 2 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista